Hello, my name is Major Jake Ricken, the Executive Officer Trainer for the Eagle Team, the Aviation Training Team for Operations Group. Welcome to Thinking Inside the Box, the podcast of Operations Group in the National Training Center, Fort Irwin, California. Thinking Inside the Box brings you best practices from the Army's experts in combined arms operations. So our discussion today is centered on forward arming and refueling areas, a concept that goes beyond doctrine. The FARA, as opposed to the traditional forward arming and refueling points, have a renewed interest. Current conflicts suggest aviation will have to be performed at greater distances. This makes refueling operations and rearming operations a center of gravity for aviation task forces. Large-scale combat operations suggest aviation will have to be employed at distances greater than 150 kilometers. As such, you can see the aviation branch is considering how to execute operations at distance. Our discussion will be not only doctrine, the concept, but also best practices we're seeing. And we'll conclude with a discussion on risks. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Chief Warrant Officer 3, Ed Smith, our aviation safety trainer, and Sergeant First Class Anthony Nice, our forward support company trainer. Why the focus on FARPs right now? Well, obviously, FARPs will always be one of the most risk-producing activities that we do in aviation, and also one of the most necessary things we do in Army aviation, especially when we start looking at maintaining that constant pressure at the decisive points, key points on the battlefield. And as we are seeing these increased distances of travel, you know, our FARPs become very key elements, which also means that the enemy is also be focusing heavily on those. So the big focus that we're kind of looking at here is what are we looking at? What is this new hybrid? And then what are the risks that we have seen so far here at the National Training Center. So I think survivability is what a lot of units are thinking through, and that's why they're coming to this conclusion of the, the far uh, So NTC, great place to practice doctrine. Absolutely. So from the FSC team, what do you normally see with FARP? So let's start with what doctrine has for FARP. First and foremost, your FARP, right? Your forward arming and refueling point. Traditionally, your FARP or any other variation of FARPs, whether it's a jump FARP, anywhere between one to four points. But your FARP is generally going to be a temporary facility that is organized, equipped, and deployed to the most forward area or widely dispersed as tactically feasible in order to get that fuel and that ammunition necessary out to the sustainment for aviation maneuver units in combat. So in sense, it's basically just a giant mobile gas station in the middle of a piece of land mm -hmm. that provides the necessary uh, things to get aircraft up and moving. Mm -hmm. But what we do see here when units come through is they will set their FARPs up generally within their TA. Sometimes they'll push it out to attack or even in a BSA or an RSA, and they will sit on this FARP for up to 72 hours sometimes, whether it's a one, two, three, or four point FARP. And the, the distance has been a bit of a change in the last year, so that we typically don't see the FARP team come back to the TA. That is correct. They're out there the whole time. A lot of the times, the units will push their FARPs out. They will call it a jump FARP. If we get into doctrine, their jump FARPs are normally out there again for about 72 hours, which doctrinally speaking, a jump FARP should not be out there that long. So I think we're trying to get out of a rhythm as far as what we've been used to in the last two decades into the next large-scale combat operations. The variations of the FAR have been interesting. So it does go beyond doctrine, the types of doctrinal FARPs that we'd see. How would you describe the FARA to somebody? So the FARA essentially is a FARP, but we're not running two to 400 feet of fixed hosing. That's one of the most common variables. And then with that, units have the ability, A, the pilots have the ability to land on a piece of terrain that makes sense to them because the FARP in itself is just basically going to be like a 1K by 1K kind of box. So you're giving the pilots liberty to, yep, they shoot their approach to kind of the center, but now they can selectively pick where they want to put the aircraft down. And then you're also providing the refuelers and armament personnel the ability 
to rapidly displace. Station 2308, the FAR was very far forward. Now, granted, like he was saying, we're seeing them sit there for extended periods. And in this instance, they had been there for about two days. Okay. Eventually finally took IDF. But in the process, that whole FARP displaced in a matter of, what, five minutes? FARP or a FARP? That was a FARP. So definitely a lot of survivability piece there. The other part that we're kind of seeing is, so that's commonalities, right? So there's no fixed hose lines. And we're basically maintaining mobile refuelers and mobile armaments. That's yeah. essentially what we're getting after. Now, in terms of like specifically what we've been seeing, honestly, and one seven alpha can back me up. I want to say we've kind of seen different variations every single time. Absolutely. It's not actually being established before they're getting here. So we're seeing different elements, you know, different techniques. So Any variations to go to? Yeah, there's been a, a, quite a few variations that we've seen. I think the last three rotations, we've had three different types of far variations. One in particular, as an example, a unit came out, decided to drop their flat racks of okay. ammunition first to kind of give a cue for the aircraft to land in the vicinity of. But what ended up happening was aircraft landed probably 600 meters from those flat racks. So now they're having to pick the flat racks back up, drive out to the aircraft. Some units came out, they left the flat racks on the trucks, waited for the aircraft to land, and then that way they could just drive, drive the aircraft. So the wheels are, are, are rolling on, on the new FARA concept, but yes, uh, it's different variations and it's been interesting to see how units have been executing them. Yeah, I think we generally, the, the no fixed hoses makes sense driving up to, I think we're starting to see units work with the logistics element more often because of this concept. Because when the FARPs are out there the whole time, life support, where they're getting the class three and five from become a, a different muscle movement for that FSC. So I guess when we're looking at doctrine, FARA concept, it seems to add mobility. There is some room in our doctrine where we've already talked FARP zones. What What's a FARP zone? Basically a FARP zone is an area within a given location that's going to be your left and your right limits or your limits of advance as far as letting the aircraft know on where they should be landing. Not too far left, not too far right, things of that nature. Yeah. If you kind of, especially the way the dot one seven kind of lays it out, mm -hmm. it's very, very similar to how a artillery battalion would pre-plan all their PAAs. So they, they know up to phase line, gene, we're gonna have PA here, PA here, PA here. We know once the trigger has been met and our forces have advanced beyond this PAA, obviously they have to maintain their coverage. The PA is going to shift. Well, their S3, their planning personnel have already predetermined those locations okay. based on how they want their fires. So for the zone concept and the FAR really plays directly into that zone concept since it's so much more mobile, your S3, your XO, the whole planning operation, you could have already predetermined like, hey, prior to this phase line, here's going to be like our FARP zones. We're going to have a zone here. We're going to have a zone here, have a zone here. Yeah. And then that gives us the ability to then say, okay, this we've been working this zone for a couple hours hours now, there's a drone overhead, it's time to shut this bad boy down. If we had the proper manning and personnel, we could already have another FARP or FARA on standby, silent, as the book would say, mm -hmm. and now we just notify them, hey, you're up, we are displacing. So that's really where the FARP zones, I think, is kind of like where we can get yeah. this to. Yeah, you kind of see the, the blending there between FARA and the FARP mm -hmm. zones. Seems like there's some connection between the two. What's, uh, I guess, the when you contrast FARA and the FARP, what's, what's some of the pros and cons that you've seen? Some of the, the pros that I've seen as far as the difference between your FARA and your FARP. So we talked about it a little earlier in this podcast. Your traditional FARP, the biggest pro is the okay. setup and the breakdown time. Out of the 11 rotations that I've been here, there's only been one rotation that has set up and certified within 30 minutes. Okay. That's including not the breakdown, of course. All the other units normally generally take about 45 minutes to an hour and a half for set up and to certify. And of course, okay. that's not included 
including the breakdown. So that has been by far the biggest pro is eliminating the time on station as far as the FARA concept goes. That's probably the biggest pro that I've seen. Okay. Do you have any cons? One that comes to my mind is in practice, it seems like it's a longer ground time with aircraft on the ground Mm -hmm. because trucks are moving up. Like you said, the flat racks are having to get repositioned. So there's -hmm. there's some extended ground time after it gets set initially, which is interesting. And Ed, I think you commented on a pretty interesting thing. The field artillery's reconned all those sites. They've operationalized Mm -hmm. that. I feel like the FAR we've seen, I don't know if it always gets to that recon. So out of the three FARs that I've seen, some units have reconned that area. Some were just given a grid square and said, kind of go and figure it out. Yeah, you can see where there's a a weighing of risks there. Air crews don't necessarily have more than the grid square to go off of uh, in practice. There's obvious pros and cons. I think it's people and units are liking the idea because of its survivability. But I think there's a lot of risks that are important to discuss. To kind of frame it, what kind of risks and mission forces are you seeing? In terms of risk to mission, The big thing is going to be that sustainment piece. And I know that's something the Eagle 7 likes to drive home uh, every rotation, right? So he's already established these FARP crews, FAR crews are not coming back to us. So we have to maintain that ability to get that sustainment out there. The risk to the mission there being that if we allow that to lapse, even the slightest little bit, obviously we're not gonna have the ammo, we're not gonna have the fuel necessary. And we've seen that happen before where aircraft had landed. Now granted it's in the force on force portion, but they did not have a flat rack. They did not have any actual or even notional ammo available. Mm-hmm. So Apaches land, get gas, burn all that time, shutting down to Redcon 2, find out there's no ammo at this particular FARA. Now that we have to fire back up, fly to a different location. And then obviously that's the other reason we keep touching on the time that we're staying where we're at. You know, the biggest risk to mission is that FARP being taken out. Whether it be a conventional or a FARA, there's always the risk of the enemy locating that location. Basically when they see aircraft landing, touching down and shutting down. That for any Ford observer, I mean, that is a prime target, definitely high on the uh, priority target list. For risk of force, you know, as we're talking about our soldiers and we're talking about our aircraft and our equipment, we kind of already touched on with the FAR, it's not going to be certified in the same traditional means as a conventional 2.4-point FARP, right? So 2.4-point FARP, we, th- we have to wait for those hoses to get ran. We have to wait for everything to be in place. And then, you know, the safety officer, the de- designated individual, from the commander will come out and physically inspect it per the unit checklist and then certify it. That is something that we're seeing is basically it's just not taking place with the FAR. There's really been very little consideration given. In fact, we have heard the term, well, it's not a FARP, it's a FAR, so I don't need to certify it. We have heard that multiple times. No, that's that's not actually the case at all. There's still an inspection process that needs to go into this because your risk to force there is essentially you get out there and you don't have a piece of equipment. You didn't bring extra nozzles. You didn't bring, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, especially if it was a safety item. Well, shoot, now you got soldiers stuck out there without this item. And oh, by the way, they are 200 kilometers forward of where your TAA is actually located. So there's really like a big, big yeah. piece to that. Anything to hit on from the soldier in the FARP? And, and that's really the biggest thing is a lot of the units will use the FARA concept as an excuse to not certify it, right? But uh, again, okay. that's, that's, that's not the case here um, because PCCs and I's are a huge thing. Yeah. anywhere just in the army, not just with FARPs. But even those have a hard time getting completed. So if we're not going by some type of safety checklist and we're just trusting the leadership that's on the ground in those units to ensure that the equipment's there, that the hoses from the trucks aren't leaking, mm-hmm. that the grounding rods are there, that the things necessary are in place to mitigate risk. Even if they were doing a safety checklist, your traditional FARP, you have probably almost between 50 to 60 things you're checking. 
with the FARA, even though you're going to still certify it, you're, you're now only having to certify 10 or 15 things on the checklist now. I think it's it's more of units just need to stop using it as maybe an excuse to stop certifying and, and to go ahead and understand that it still needs to be certified. So that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah, I think that's so interesting points. Solving the problem of survivability has manifested itself in maybe not carrying forward some of the practices that make FARP safe mm-hmm. in the first place. I think we were talking of the 50 or 60 items. There's only a handful that are tied to fixed fuel. That would apply to a fixed fuel setting mm-hmm. as fixed fuel lines. It's like so a lot of the, five or six out of the checklist yeah. that the dot one seven recommends and yeah. the, that certification process of course being key to helping mitigate risks mm-hmm. getting that extra set of eyes for the, the fsc team so that's interesting i guess knowing the risks there has, have any units attempted far as at night and or de- more demanding modes so i've personally seen fars conduct that night once you're working under limited visibility it's a little bit of a game changer especially when units come out there and they're not very proficient under nods yeah it seems they're more of at a crawl phase during the night which is okay mm-hmm. safety first mm-hmm. But uh, we have seen them do it at night. Again, different variations on how units decide to place things on the ground to help the aircraft with landing. Yeah. Um, anywhere between chem lights, IRs. But okay. yeah, we have seen them operate at night. Okay. I guess when we're talking risks, a lot of things that we're talking about that makes units successful is how much planning they're doing. Using the parallel of the PAs and the artillery world, mm-hmm. one of the bigger discussions in Army aviation is sometimes comparing and contrasting uh, air assaults versus air movements. A lot of missions get deemed air movements because of the assessed time it will take to plan an air assault. We know that that one is talking air movements, air, air assault. There's really not a difference in planning. There's a perceived difference, but mm-hmm. I think there's a parallel here. With, uh, with that. Absolutely. And that's that's been the biggest thing that I have noticed, you know, from the safety officer perspective. I think that's why I was kind of pushing back on FARA a little bit when we first started using that term. Yeah. Um, because what we're seeing is exactly what we've been saying is we change one letter in an acronym and now all of a sudden, magically, the risk was supposed to have gone away. And in reality, the risk is there. If anything, we created more risk, especially when we start talking night operations. And like he was saying, them not being accustomed to working under nods, you know, to get to the vehicle. That's a great point. That's an absolutely great point because in a conventional fixed point FARP, our refuelers don't have to wear an MEG, right? Because the aircraft are going to land to their designated locations. And if anything, it's just a red lens flashlight to make sure they're not tripping on something and they just walk up to the aircraft. Aircraft stay at 100%, 101%, whichever aircraft you're flying. Now we have to have TCs out. We have to have drivers with goggles. And now they're driving in very tight location to the aircraft. And I think that's been one of the biggest things in terms of like risk to mission that we have kind of seen is task force commanders we've had have limited that to absolutely warm fuel only, which in a conventional FARP, we hardly ever see that here. It's usually always hot fuel, hot rearm refuel okay. uh, at NTC. So that's a little bit of the ground time builds into that mm-hmm. timing. Uh, how about, are the units coming the same proficiency as you've typically seen with the new concept versus setting up more traditional FARP? It's a great question. The units that I've seen personally out here, I could probably label them from the best one through three um, as far as proficiency goes. However, they all have the same common denominator, though, is all these units that have come out here have never trained it at the home station. It's the the first time they're ever trying it Mm -hmm. is here at NTC, which where else better here and then NTC to go ahead and try to execute things of that nature. None of these units have ever did this at home station. So their first time is out here executing the FARA. And it's been, again, quite interesting to see how leaders are enabled and the type of leadership and mission planning that goes into it to see how successful they are at the end of the rotation. And then to take that one step further, not only they have not trained it back at home station, we're not seeing it in the tax ops or SOPs 
duties. We're not seeing it as a part of the mission rehearsals before they depart the TAA. They, they are conducting their general PCC, PCIs like they would for any convoy operation, but we're not seeing doctrinally, they have not established this in their own internal doctrine. Yeah. Uh, so they're literally like trying it out for the first time as they get here to the National Training Center. Yeah, a lot of the habits and training does probably transfer between the FARP and the FARA, but it is different and that it's mm-hmm. the sets and reps to go into the sports analogy aren't typically at the same level. Yeah, absolutely. They haven't done the FARP rodeo mm-hmm. using the FARP concept. And that crew drill is a key element to pretty much any type of metal task in the yeah. Army. I'm, I'm an old artillery guy. A, you know, Setting up a cannon or setting up a fire direction center was a very prescribed set of processes, step by step by step by step. And you do it over and over and over and over to the point where a crew drill with muscle memory is established. And I think that's why we see a lot of different setups. Mm-hmm. Even within the same rotation, we'll see a far set up one way and they move to another location and it's set up a little bit differently. They go, well, we're not going to put the flat racks on the ground yet, you know? So it's not having those sets and reps is a great example of, you know, this is really where a lot of the points of failure begin is we have not rehearsed that. We have not put that into motion before we arrive. Uh, Yeah, I think we've had a good discussion on risk. I think there's a lot of excitement with this. It's very evident that Mm -hmm. units are discussing this throughout. We've been learning a tremendous amount. One of the benefits of being stationed in Mojave. What would you recommend units do to integrate the FARA? That's the direction that they'd like to go. The first piece, you have to operationalize it. You absolutely have to operationalize this. Just like we would operationalize anything else that we do. There, It has to be planned. It has to be a part of the planning process. And then when it comes to the certification, and I'm going to say a little bit, and I'm sure he'll have some to touch on as well. Your certification no longer has to happen out there. We've established that. There's no fixed hose line. So what are we really going out there to certify? So where are we going to certify this? We're going to certify it before they ever leave the TAA. Okay. The same checklist that you already have in your SOP can be the exact same checklist. All you're going to do is just line through those items that would require you to inspect a hose system on the ground. We can still inspect the nozzles before they leave. We can still have them pull the hose from the truck, Mm -hmm. take a general look at the conditioning of the hosing, safety equipment, spill equipment, everything else that we would inspect that's out there, we would already have inspected it. That can still be your ASO. That can still be any person that the commander you know authorizes to certify that. But to me, the real big thing is the rehearsal. It has to be rehearsed before you ever leave the TAA. Preferably rehearsed before you ever come to NTC. <laughs> But definitely rehearse before you leave the TAA. There is a diagram that is given to the crews. Now, is it going to look the exact same every single time? No. MET-TC dictates how the trucks are going to have to set themselves up because our terrain is very different here. It's very rugged. That's going to change. They bring this to a different different environment with trees. Mm -hmm. It's going to be different. So different hazards, different terrain. Absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of the planning it out, that is probably the number one thing for reducing the risk for the FAR. It is the planning process itself. It's not just, hey, great coordinate, your high speed, head over there by the BSB, establish us a FAR. Just send us a great coordinate on GBCP. Potentially more plan than a traditional FAR. It's a caveat off of that. I think uh, another thing that units, they can practice this in the future to help them is leadership involvement, right? So a lot of the mission analysis and planning is involved with the site location, site planning, FAR concepts, the mission. You will go to some of these meetings as OCs to kind of overview and observe mm-hmm. to see what's going on. And the distro PL or the platoon sorry, won't be in there. The FARP or the FARA NCOIC will not be present. 
Okay. So a lot of it is, I believe, just a lot of key leaders that are going to be strictly involved with these types of operations probably need to be a little bit more involved in the mission planning. That way they're all on the same page and they can go ahead yeah. and distribute that information to the lowest soldier within their unit. And of course, again, rehearsing in PCCs and I and back briefs. As me, as a platoon sergeant, I tell my section chief, hey, this is what needs to happen. He or she comes back to me, hey, did we get this done? Yes, we got it done. I'm not doing spot checks, right? We're not getting back briefs, so we're not understanding. Now, next thing we know, I'm taking the word of somebody and we go out to the far, the far end and there's equipment missing. It yeah. happens every rotation, mm -hmm. important equipment missing. Spot checks, back briefs, and letting your soldiers know what PCCs and I's actually mean uh, goes a long way for mission success. So okay. all the things that you're saying are hard to fit in. Having that plan planned out and it kind of gets more time back to the platoon and the companies. One thing you, you hit on there is we're talking when you're practicing this at distance, it's very difficult to keep that platoon up to date on the missions. So that's your discussion of how do you get them involved in planning. It's not only initial planning, but like throughout. That's an interesting consideration, especially as they're moving to a new location. As a Chinook guy myself, I like to have the FARP diagram. In, uh, mm -hmm. as part of the air assault brief. Yeah. Uh, harder to do, but maybe you're hitting on it with a doc temp, uh, so to speak, mm -hmm. of a setup so that everybody is, knows what to expect. So we covered quite a bit on the fire today. Any parting shots? One thing I would like to throw out there is, you know, we're not the only ones that are seeing this. Uh, I'm not sure if it's being attempted at JRTC or any other CTCs that are out there, but for units that are actually trying this back at home station, if you have techniques, if you have TTPs that are working, we're always open to that. That is something because, you know, we're seeing it as it's happening yeah. and we're taking notes as we go. So we've seen three or four rotations of it now. Obviously, we've identified a lot of friction point, hence why we're now doing this podcast. You know, but for units that are actually attempting this back at home station and you have some good TTPs that you think or you've already developed an SOP for it, please throw that up on our Eagle Team mill suite or our Microsoft Teams. Let us take a look at it because that is something we can definitely share with the force. We're not here just to grade and evaluate people. We're here to make it a better function for the Army as a whole, not just yeah. us. That's a great point. I'm not in the business of forecasting, but it sure seems like far as we're here to say. Absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing the current lessons learned from the National Training Center. You all clearly have a, a privileged perspective. Look at our mail suite page for the latest products from the operations group and subscribe to Operation Group Tac Talks on YouTube for short lessons on successful techniques. Thank you for listening to Thinking Inside the Box, the podcast of Operations Group National Training Center. Thank you.